You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I am finally back with the latest edition of our annual Summer Scouting the Enemy series, this time focusing on Game 3 on the 2021 Georgia football schedule against the South Carolina Gamecocks. Yes, we are skipping Game 2. I respect UAB. They are a good Group of Five program, especially since their program has been brought back from the dead. But... We only do the Power 5 teams on the schedule with this series for a couple of reasons. First being that in the past, none of you have really ever shown that much or really any interest in in-depth breakdowns of the non-Power 5 teams on our schedule. That's something that we've learned over the years, and we try to give you guys what you want. That's what we are here to do. And then secondly, honestly, I just don't know that much about those teams because the fact is, we just don't get to see them play very much. So, sorry, Charleston Southern, you're not on TV very often. So, other than kind of like blindly throwing stats at you guys with no context, I haven't seen those teams. We just don't have much to offer there. So, no group of five teams, no Division two teams, but we do have plenty to offer when it comes to our Power 5 opponents because we know these teams. We watch these teams Week in, week out. We study these teams. I spent all offseason watching every single game they played last year. And that is not an exaggeration, guys. My wife can certainly attest to that. It is it is a labor of love. I put a lot of time to that. I really started essentially right after the college basketball national championship game. I'm a big college basketball fan. I just love college sports in general. So when college basketball is on, I spend, you know, when that season's going on in January, February, into March, obviously. I'm all into college basketball at that time. I'm watching it basically every day of the week. But as soon as that last ball goes through the hoop, it's film study time. And my mind is never that far off football. Football is never far from my mind. But once college basketball season is over, that's when the film study really, really begins in earnest. And I do. I go back and watch every single game that our opponents in the coming season played the previous year. I've got YouTube TV. That's what I use. They have an unlimited DVR. So I record every college game that's played during the season. And then I spend the offseason going back and re-watching those games multiple times with a fine-tooth comb. Number one, just because I love it. I love college football. I live for college football. You guys that listen to the show, you know that. I just enjoy it. I love it. I love watching the different schemes, seeing how different coaches do different things, watching the adjustments, how one coach responds to what this coach is trying to do to him, the adjustments that teams make within games, from game to game. I love just learning more about the team so you have a better idea of what they're going to be in the coming year. All those things. I just love it, but I also want to make sure that I prepare myself to give you guys the most in-depth previews of the teams on our schedule. So it's a labor of love. put a lot of time into it, but it's I don't really consider it work because, again, I just enjoy it that much. We've been a little bit behind this summer on our Scouting Enemy series because we've had we've just had so many news items pop up throughout the past couple of weeks that everything is, it just keeps getting pushed back and back and back, whether we have commitments, whether we have Oklahoma, Texas decide they're going to join the SEC. We just had different things pop up. So 
we're normally about halfway through the through the schedule at this point in the summer, but we're not there right now. Obviously, we're on game three, so we're going to have to kick this into high gear over the next couple of weeks, but don't worry. Have no fear. We will get to all these teams. I've put in way too much work on the front end to get ready for these episodes to just not run them, so we're going to do them, and uh, we're going to get back into the swing of things here today, focusing on the South Carolina Gamecocks, but first, before we get there, I got to say thank you. We've got to, guys, because we have officially reached our initial modest goal of 275 five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. And we've said it so many times on this show that I've lost count, but who cares? I just don't think it can be said enough. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for all that support. Those five-star ratings and reviews, they have come pouring in over the past two weeks since we first put the call out. And it's its really humbling, man. It really is. You guys are all far too kind to us, uh, but we really appreciate it. And it really does help out our podcast massively to have you have those of you who enjoy our show actually let people know that you enjoyed the show. It, it really does help us keep this thing going. And I believe it was Jones Dog, I want to say, who officially put us over the top. So thank you, man. Thank you for that. And thank you again, not just to Jones Dog, but to everyone who has already been generous enough to help us out with a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We've actually blown past 275 now since the last show. We're sitting right now at 281, which is awesome, obviously. But let's not stop there. We've still got over a month until the season gets here. So let's get greedy, guys. Let's get greedy and see how high we can go with this. Uh, so new goal here, we're now shooting for 300 five-star ratings and reviews by September 4th when we kick off the season in Charlotte against the Clemson Tigers. That's the new goal, 300. We set 275 as a very modest goal. We were hoping we could get to that. Obviously, you guys answered in a big way, and we're so grateful for that. But let's try to pump this up even higher. Let's get to 300, see if we can do that. And um, I, I, I kind of, I, I've been wanting to do something to thank all of you for all of this incredible support. You guys have been so awesome. So we, we've kind of been thinking about this for a while, kind of throwing about different ideas. And what we're going to do is this. As soon as we get to 300 five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and, and we get to 500 followers on Instagram, we will do an Instagram live session where we will interact directly with all of you. I have no idea how to do an Instagram live session because I've never done one. Uh, I, I feel incredibly old saying that, and I'm not that old by number. Like I, I should know how to do that. I've just never had any reason to do an Instagram live. I guess, hey, you run a podcast, you should have been doing this a long time ago. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, but I'll, I'll try to figure it out. If we can get to 500 followers on Instagram, we started the Instagram account. I'm recording this on Tuesday. Uh, so we've had it going for like eight days, nine days now. And in nine days, we've got about 130 or so followers, which I'm, I'm man, that's great. As far as I'm concerned, just kind of getting this thing off the ground. But we, we want to get to more than that. And we're going to, like I've told you guys, we're going to do some really cool stuff with that throughout the season. So once we get to 300 five-star rings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and we get to 500 followers on Instagram, we will do an Instagram live session. I'll figure that out for you guys and uh, we'll have some fun with that. And then I'll throw another one at you guys here. Once we hit 500 followers on Facebook, we had a Facebook account years ago, but we kind of let that go dormant because honestly, I just have, you know, I I do have other stuff going on in my life and uh, sometimes I get really busy and things kind of slip between the cracks and Facebook was kind of one of those things. But we're reviving that this season. We're gonna try to do, to do a better job with that. But uh, to make that worth our time, we need people following on Facebook. We kind of want to make that a community where you guys interact with us, interact with each other, and have a lot of fun there. But we need you guys to help us out there. So once we have 500 followers on Facebook, then we'll do a Facebook live session. You can find us on Facebook. We have uh, our Glory UGA podcast Facebook page. Just honestly go to Facebook and search for Glory UGA podcast, and it should pop right, right up for you guys. Um, and look, I know that's not much. It's not much to say thank you for all that you guys have done to support us, but I think that's the best way we can say thank you to like the mass of you that support us. So let's keep it going, guys. We are very appreciative, uh, but let's keep it going. Rate and review an Apple podcast, follow us, and, and interact with us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter as well, at glory underscore UGA. And to say thank you, we will try our best to get out of our comfort zone a little bit for you guys. But all right, let's talk South Carolina football. Now, it, it might be hard to remember these days, but do you guys remember when South Carolina went three straight seasons 
winning 11 games? You remember those teams? Those Marcus Lattimore, Jadavion Clowney, Connor Shaw teams? Yeah, I had to live through that. You guys had to live through that. It's hard to forget those days because South Carolina fans at the time wouldn't let you stop hearing about it, right? Uh, The old ball coach, man, he truly led the Gamecocks to what I think is pretty clearly the pinnacle of football success in the history of that program, which, like, and here's Petty Tyler, that's sad when the pinnacle of your success doesn't even include a conference title. It includes one conference title game appearance, but no conference titles. And that's the pinnacle of your football success in the history of your program. That's that that's sad. That that sucks. I mean, I'm, and I know they enjoyed it when it, while it lasted, but what did you really get out of that? Not much. And in the midst of that run, which you guys obviously remember, ran from 2011 through 2013. And yeah, I'll have to admit here, that did include one hellacious beatdown of our Bulldogs in Columbia in 2012, night game. I was there. I vividly remember that game. That was terrible. What a uh, what a horrible experience that entire day was. That entire weekend, really, man. Look, I, I actually like going to Columbia, South Carolina for football games, for a Georgia football game. I know a lot of people give it give it grief and talk trash about it, but I don't think it's that bad. I think it's got some things going for it in terms of like just going there for one football weekend. But man, they were jacked up that weekend. They never had any kind of success really ever historically, and they just didn't know how to handle it. And man, they were just so loud, talking so much. I mean, even just going to a restaurant, just like old women just like talking trash, like vicious stuff. And I was like, whoa, Okay. Okay. So uh, yeah, I lived through that. I, I vividly remember that game and every other game that we've lost in Columbia in the, the mid 2000s. But in the midst of that run of three straight 11 win seasons, the Gamecock faithful. And yeah, this is a fan base that does deserve to be called faithful because that program has essentially been an afterthought program for its entire existence, really, but the fans keep showing up year after year after year, so I gotta give them credit there. But for a minute, for a minute there, the Gamecock faithful, man, they decided they had made the jump to one of the college football leagues. Not the jump, the leap, the Herculean leap to where they were to now one of the college football leagues. They were convinced they had done that, right? And they were always defensive about not getting enough respect. I mean, hell, in their minds, they became an overnight college football blue blood there for a couple years. And again, I don't know if a fan base has ever talked more trash than South Carolina did in that three-year span. They were truly an insufferable fan base. And certainly, guys, every fan base of every team's rival, you're going to consider them insufferable. Like, Tech fans consider all of us insufferable. Florida fans, Auburn fans, they consider all of us insufferable. Like That's just how college football rivalries go. But I don't know if that term has ever been more accurately applied to a fan base than it has South Carolina during that three-year span. I really don't know, man. Like they They were just tough to be around. But then the old ball coach got lazy and his program started to slip. And they came crashing back down to reality from that aberrational program high, punctuated by, of course, an abysmal 2-8 and eight showing last season. 2-8 and eight that capped off four losing seasons in the eight years since that last 11-win season in 2013. So Will Muschamp, he had to go, right? He inherited a mess, steadied the ship, built up that roster. Got to give him a lot of credit in that regard. But as has been the fatal flaw, his fatal flaw as a head coach, he could never get his South Carolina offense on track. That goes back to his days at Florida. That's why he lost a job at Florida, couldn't get the offense on track. Same story at South Carolina. Defenses are always pretty good. Offense, terrible. But their search to replace Will Muschamp revealed, to me at least, that the Gamecocks have finally accepted their lot in life, at least for the time being. They've come to terms with who they are. I mean, guys, let's think about who this program is historically. This is a program that had one single 10-win season in the entire history of their program prior to the beginning of that three-year run of 11-win seasons in 2011. This is a program that has one single conference title in 114 years of playing football. One single 
conference title. And no, that's not an SEC title. They're one of the teams in the league that has never won an SEC title. So thinking about who they are historically and kind of coming off that 2-8 and eight just complete collapse, the athletic administration at South Carolina, they didn't set their sights on a big name, a splashy hire. No, they didn't do that. They weren't going after Nick Saban. They weren't going after Steve Sarkeesian. They weren't going after those guys because they knew that wasn't happening. That wasn't happening. Sure, like the Spurrier thing happened. They did get a big name coach in Steve Spurrier. You gotta admit that, right? That's obvious. But that was more of a case of right place, right time. Spurrier just wanted to get out of the NFL, get back to the college game. They had an opening there, and he's in the SEC. You know, kind of it was just a fit there. But I think that was a sign that they have finally understood and kind of accepted their place in the landscape of college football. And they zeroed in on a coach who had never been a coordinator before in his life, who had absolutely zero other suitors, a coach that no other program in the country had ever even considered hiring as a head coach. And their fans went with it. Why? Because they had been beaten into submission. And they finally, again, at least for now, accepted who they are, where this program lies in the landscape of college football. So here we sit with Shane Beamer leading the charge in Columbia, South Carolina. A guy who's, I mean, let's be real, the strongest line on his resume is that his last name is Beamer. And he's kind of been around some other really good coaches, been around Kirby Smart, been around Lincoln Riley, right? Those are the strongest parts of his resume. And Look, I can't sit here and say there is no chance that Shane Beamer will find success in Columbia. You guys know, if you listen to this show for a long time, I don't like to speak in absolutes. I don't believe in that. Anything is possible. We see that on a day-by-day basis pretty much. I mean, did you think Texas and Oklahoma were going to come to the ACC this time last week? Nah. You would have, if somebody would have said that to you last Monday, you would have laughed them out of the room. But here we are a week later, and well, they're joining the SEC. So anything's possible. I don't like to speak in absolutes. And if you look at this South Carolina roster, like there is talent on hand. Say what you want about Will Muschamp and his like head coaching abilities, but the guy can recruit. And he left that roster in pretty good shape for the most part. Like Shane Beamer is inheriting a much better roster than Will Muschamp did the one that Muschamp inherited from Steve Spurrier when he got really lazy toward the end there and basically just stopped recruiting. And Beamer's inheriting a much better roster than than like really most new coaches do when they are replacing a staff that went 6-16 six and 16 combined the previous two seasons. Usually when you're replacing a staff that's been that bad over the past two years, has that kind of record, it's because their roster's terrible, right? And there's just not much talent on hand. That's not really the case with the South Carolina program. 2-8 and eight was a bad look last year, to be certain. Duh, clearly. But when healthy, Carolina wasn't really that bad at the beginning of the season. Like, Don't forget, they did beat Auburn. I know Auburn wasn't great last year, but Auburn was a solid-ish team. South Carolina beat them. I mean, Muschamp was fired up. If you remember him at the end of that game, I don't know how many of you actually watched this game, and I know it's kind of gotten lost to history, but I watched every second of the Florida game last year, like live and then gone back and watched it this offseason. They pushed Florida in Gainesville. They they really did. They pushed them. Like they didn't win the game, but they had chances there to really make a run at Florida. And they, they gave them at least a little bit of a push there in Gainesville. That was a good Florida team, obviously. But then the injury struck. COVID quarantines hit. They lost some close games. Muschamp got fired. The opt-outs decimated their roster after that. And before you know it, they are basically putting a Sunbelt team out there every Saturday the last half of the season. But none of those things are going to be an issue this year. They're not. If we're looking ahead to this year, they're not going to worry about opt-outs. They're not going to really have to worry about COVID quarantines. And a lot of the talent that Muschamp procured during his time there, it's still on hand. Those guys are still there. So no, it wouldn't completely shock me if South Carolina got to a bowl game this year, it wouldn't completely shock me if Shane Beamer could get them to eight, nine wins every now and then. But what I don't see is Shane Beamer transforming this program into a consistent contender, elevating the program to that degree. Kind of what we've seen Dabo Swinney do for Clemson. I don't see Shane Beamer being that kind of guy. We just see no evidence to support that especially when you factor in he's going to have to beat 
uh, a bunch of teams, a bunch of coaches on the recruiting trail consistently that are at the top of their game. I mean, think about who's going to have to be in the recruiting trail time and time again. You can't just have one good class. You have to put good class on top of good class on top of good class. He's going to have to beat these guys time and time again on the trail to even get his talent close to on par with the true contenders. Like, is he going to out-recruit Kirby Smart and Dabo Swinney and Nick Saban? And hell, Mac Brown these days. Is he going to out-recruit those guys with the programs they have to sell consistently enough to be able to build a consistent contender in Columbia? I personally just don't think the answer is yes. Now, of course, a South Carolina fan will tell you differently. Personally, I just do not think the answer is yes. I think the objective answer to that question is no, probably not, right? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, so that's kind of laying out where this program is right now. But let's get to this year's South Carolina team. And normally on these episodes, I would throw out their numbers from last year as as a starting point and kind of breaking down the roster, kind of illustrating their strengths and their weaknesses. And I will still do that for most teams as we carry on with this Scouting the Enemy series. But I'm not going to do it today for the South Carolina Gamecocks. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm just going to completely throw those team numbers out the window from last year because honestly, they just they had so many COVID issues, so many opt outs. Especially once Muschamp was let go, that I just I don't think those numbers are all that valuable. I don't think they really provide you any insight into this year's team, which is what we're going for. We're trying to get what this team's going to be this year. So as far as team numbers go, I'm not going to really throw many of those at you. Maybe something here and there, but not a ton. I'll I'll throw some individual stuff at you because I think that might have some value. But the team numbers, I'm going to kind of ignore those for the most part. But let's talk about this offense, which is obviously, again, the one big thing that Will Muschamp just could never figure out. He, he recruited pretty well. He did, considering South Carolina's station in life, like where they kind of are situated in the college ball landscape. And they played pretty good defense under Muschamp, but he could just never find the answer on offense. And it wasn't for lack of trying. Like, well, Muschamp knew it, guys. Like, he, he knew the issue was offense. And he, he tried different different combinations there. He started out with Kurt Roper, who was also his last offensive coordinator at Florida, which that's was clearly a mistake. Did not learn. Did not learn there from that mistake at Florida. So you gotta, you, you gotta, you gotta knock him for that. But then he finally moved on from Roper. Give him credit there. Finally, a little bit too late, but moved on from Roper. But he promoted Brian McClendon, who I love. I love Brian McClendon. God bless you, BMAC. Love BMAC. A Georgia guy, right? But he promoted a guy who had never been an offensive coordinator before, and that didn't work out. And then he brings in Mike Bobo, who did what he could with what he had to work with last year. But that's the tail in the Muschamp tenure. Obviously, his seat was very, very warm and uh, didn't work out. And then Bobo is kind of like the lame duck offensive coordinator. I guess takes over as the interim head coach for the last half of the year. But the offense has clearly been the issue for Carolina. They've been 10th or worse in the league in four, or they were 10th or worse in the league in four out of five of Will Muschamp's years there. They topped out at number seven in the SEC in total offense. And guys... I don't have to tell you. You're smart. You get it. That ain't going to cut it. It's just not good enough. So one of the big questions for Carolina coming into 2021 is what exactly will this offense look like? 
Now, usually you have an idea when you have a, a new staff coming in because the head coach you bring in usually has like some sort of identity of his own, right? But Shane Beamer is a wild card. It's a different case here because he has no identity, at least in terms of like uh, being, being a coordinator. He's never been an OC. He's never been a defense coordinator for that matter. So I guess what you have to do to get clues as to what this offense will look like is look at his hires. Look at his offensive coordinator hire here offensively. And that's a guy named Marcus Satterfield who has previously been the offensive coordinator at Tennessee Chattanooga, uh, then at Temple for a couple of years. He spent about 20 plus years wandering around college football. And then he landed with Joe Brady and the Carolina Panthers last year. So pretty clearly what Beamer is going for here is, is a version of the 2019 LSU offense, probably mixed with a little bit of the Lincoln Riley Oklahoma offense, because that's where Beamer's coming from most recently, although he was never involved in calling plays in Norman. So I don't know how much they're going to they're gonna incorporate into this new Marcus Satterfield offense. We'll see, probably a little bit of something there. But the Brady offense is the trend. Like anything else, college football is, it's, it's a sport of trends, a sport of copycats. And right now, that shine is still on the Joe Brady offense. That's what everyone wants to emulate. And, and that's really the New Orleans Saints offense with tempo. That's where Joe Brady came from. It's really kind of what it is. But that appears to be the direction that they are going for in Columbia, South Carolina. But for this season, the bigger question becomes, okay, if that's what you're going to go for long term, do you actually have the personnel to run that offense or find any semblance of success with it this year? Like This isn't the 2019 LSU roster we're talking about. Joe Burrow's not walking through that door. Jamar Chase ain't walking through that door. Neither is Clyde Edwards-Alaire. Those guys aren't on this roster. So to answer that question, do they have the personnel to run this offense or a version of that kind of offense? I think you got to start with the quarterback position. Let's start there. And that's a position that I don't know, man, like that's an industrial size question mark for South Carolina entering the 2021 season. It really is. I mean, actually, I'm not even sure I would call it a question mark now that I think about it. I would label it more like a, I don't know, a, a colossal concern for the Gamecocks entering this season. Now, the odds on favorite to get the nod to open the season is Luke Doty, the guy who actually started against us last year late in the season. He's almost certainly going to be the guy for them this year, at least to start the year. But dear God, he was just abysmal last year. He just wasn't good, even by true freshman standards. Like It got to the point, especially in that Kentucky game, it got so bad, you kind of felt sorry for him that they put him out there like that because he just wasn't ready. And maybe he will turn out to be a good player in the right system. I, I can't discount that possibility. He, After all, he was a former top 100 recruit, the former number four dual threat quarterback in the country coming out of high school. Like He was one of those big time guys that Will Mushin was able to land. Mushin could recruit and he's one of the examples. But based on what I saw from Doty last year, Yikes, man. Yikes. Um, absolutely, he's going to have to improve. Like, if they're going to be good on offense, he's going to have to take a massive leap forward. And I just, I don't know. Like, it's going to take a massive jump in a new system for him to even be like a competent passer based off what I saw last year. But I'll give him this. Got to be fair here. He does have a specific skill set. The dude can run the football, he's a physical and athletic runner. Uh, and he just flat out poses a major threat with his legs. Like he can run the football. And in some ways you might be able to say he's a running back playing quarterback. I think you can maybe apply that tag to him. Um, but, and that's one of the things that, that always kind of bothers me when talk about dual threat quarterbacks. Like, are you really a dual threat quarterback if you can't actually threaten teams consistently with your arm? Like just because you can run doesn't make you a dual threat guy. Like so often you see these guys that can run from the quarterback position and everyone automatically just labels them a dual threat. It's like, well, since they play quarterback, the assumption is automatically, well, of course they can throw the football, they play quarterback. But that isn't always the case. And we haven't seen evidence, at least at the college level to this point, that Luke Doty is actually a bona fide, legit dual threat quarterback. We've seen evidence that he can hurt you with his legs. We've seen that, but not so much with the arm yet, not consistently. And look, he, yeah, he should make some strides, clearly, with a full offseason as the starter. That makes a lot of sense. And the experience last year in those last couple of games, that certainly does help as well. But the fact is, he has a long way to go to become a legit SEC quarterback. 
And then if you look at the running back position, their starter, Kevin Harris, he's a very different running back than Clyde Edwards-Alaire was. And I, I look, no one's saying he has to be Clyde Edwards-Alaire. I understand that. I'm not trying to draw some sort of false equivalency. I'm just I'm just saying, I'm using Clyde Edwards-Alaire because they're bringing a guy that worked with Joe Brady last year. And you got to imagine they're trying to capture that, some of that Joe Brady magic. And to do that, you're going to need some guys that can at least kind of fit the system that Joe Brady ran and kind of do some of the things that made them so effective while he was at LSU. It wasn't just Joe Brady calling plays. Like Joe Brady didn't really do anything all that revolutionary. He just brought some ideas to college level and was able to do some things with some guys that fit that system really well that made them really, really tough to defend. The big part of that really was the personnel on hand. So I, if they're going to try to do something akin to what Joe Brady has done in the past, you got to look at the personnel. And if you look at running back, Kevin Harris, the starter, he's he's a good player. He's a really good player, but he's just a different kind of running back than Clyde Edwards-Alaire was. So that's another reason why like, I have my doubts, man. I, I really think it's going to be tough sledding in this first year for South Carolina offensively if the plan is indeed to install some version of the Joe Brady Saints offense, probably a hybrid with that and, and what Lincoln Riley runs in Oklahoma. I mean, you think about it, like Clyde Edwards-Alaire, versatile pass-catching threat, can also run between the tackles, all those things. Very versatile guy. Well, Kevin Harris, that's not him. He's good in his own right, but he does different things. He's a 225-pound throwback power back. That's what Kevin Harris is. Now, there are elements of what Oklahoma does. They want to incorporate some of that from Lincoln Riley that Harris would be a good fit in. Oklahoma, uh, at the risk of oversimplifying things here, uh, but in the sake of time, that's an offense that wants to spread you out and run pow- power right at you. Like sometimes people, there's this misconception to think, okay, just because you're a spread offense means you're like a finesse run team. No, not always. Sometimes, sometimes that's the case, but not always. Like, like Auburn, for example, or Gus Malzahn, like that was a spread to run, like power-based run attack. That was not a finesse run game. It really wasn't. I know they had a lot of window dressing, but no, they want to run power right at you. Oklahoma, very much the same thing. I mean, think back to when we played them in the Rose Bowl, guys. I, if, I don't know how much Oklahoma you watched, but I think that's a game we all watched, right? I mean, GT power, counter power. I mean, they're pulling offensive linemen all over the place. I mean, that is a power running attack that's coming at you from like a spread format. And Harris is a fit for that. Like if they want to run some of that kind of stuff, yeah, he fits that. But the fact is Harris just isn't a major threat out of the backfield as wide receiver. He's just not. Like, he can catch a check down, sure, and, and then run with it. That He can do that. But he isn't a guy that you're going to be able to just flex out wide like Clyde edwards alaire and have him go run routes for you like a wide receiver. That's not what Kevin Harris does. That's not in his skill set. But regardless, like he's still a good back. He's a good, powerful back who actually led the SEC in yards per game last year. Over, I think, about 113 yards per game last year. He's a really powerful guy, obviously, with that size. But also, he's got pretty good feet with for a big guy. Possesses good balance. So he's got that good contact balance, which is one of the things. It's an underrated aspect of being a power back. You, you can't just get hit and fall down. Like, you've got to have that, that contact balance. And he has a really good job with that. So he's a good back, man. And he's probably going to be the future part of this offense. I do also want to throw one more name at you at the running back position. Now, this is a guy that we haven't seen at the college level yet. But Marshawn Lloyd, just remember that name. Put that in your back pocket. Marshawn Lloyd missed all of last year. I think it was like the second or third day of fall camp. He tore his ACL, was out all of last year. But he's a former top 50 recruit overall nationally. And is a guy that we recruit pretty heavily. He's a guy that I would have loved to have signed in his class. Uh, I love the guys that we ended up with in that class, but I was also really high on Marshawn Lloyd at, at points in that cycle as well. I would have happily, like if we ended up with him instead of like Dajan Edwards, that, hey man, that, that's cool. I mean, I love Dajan, but Marshawn Lloyd's a really good player too in his own right. Um, maybe, and actually more highly rated than Dajan was. So he's a good running back. It's another recruiting win for Will Muschamp. Unfortunately, they just couldn't really make it happen on the field, but was a good recruiting win. I think Lloyd is more explosive. In fact, I know that Lloyd is more explosive than Harris, and I think he has the ability to be more of a receiving threat out of the backfield. I don't know if it's going to be like a true one-two punch. I think Harris is a guy that's earned a lot of carries, and he can be a workhorse type guy. But Marshawn Lloyd, I think the guy's going to make some plays for them this year and in the future. So just kind of remember that name. But uh, even though he isn't a great fit for what I think they want to do long-term, sitting here in July, again, I would project Kevin Harris to be the focal point of the South Carolina offense yet again. And a big part of that is because they just got nothing coming back at wide receiver. I mean, really, nothing. At least nothing in the way of returning production. I listen to this. I told you I wasn't going to throw you too many numbers from last year, but this one, I think this one is relevant. So I'll throw this one at you. Now, the Gamecock passing attack, it certainly did not put the fear into any defense last year. Had major problems at quarterback and receivers outside Shai Smith 
didn't do much. But Shai Smith, that receiver, was legit. That guy could play, man. He was one of the better receivers in the league. Just happened to be playing for a really bad team with no quarterback. But Shai Smith was essentially their only threat at receiver last year. I mean, he was flat out dominant for them. He had 57 catches on the year. 57. Really good season. Not elite season, but, you know, good season. Get this, though. The next four receivers, right? So he led the team in receptions. Receivers two through five in South Carolina's receptions last year combined for 35 catches. He had 57 himself. They, they just have no returning production, guys. Not that position. I mean, the highest graded South Carolina receiver outside of Shai Smith was graded 20 points low, more than 20 points lower on pro football focus than Shai Smith was. Uh, Shai Smith generated about 1.5 yards more per route run than any other South Carolina receiver last year. And they still, get this, they were still, at the end of the day, according to pro football focus, and again, we've talked about pro football focus before, take their numbers to a grain of salt. I don't know exactly how they come up with their numbers, but it's something to go with here, right? So according to Pro Football Focus, even with Shai Smith, their wide receiver room grayed out in the bottom three, even with him on the roster. So without him on the roster, I mean, where what's going to go on with this wide receiver group? I don't know, man. Like somebody's going to step up in a big way. So who are those options going to be? Like who are those guys that can maybe step, maybe step up and kind of fill in the void for Shai Smith there. So you got a couple guys to watch here. Josh Van or Trey Smith. Rico Powers are probably the top options at this point. Uh, Josh Van, you guys probably remember that name from a couple years ago on the recruiting front. He's, uh, he's actually from Tucker here in Georgia, former top 150 guy. We recruited him, but he ended up choosing South Carolina. Um, he's only got 377 yards total receiving in three years, though. Now, he's a guy that I think could be a good player for them. Does he have number one alpha wide receiver written on all over him? I haven't seen that yet. Haven't seen that. Now, he's a smaller, shiftier guy. Honestly, he's more like, from a physical standpoint, more like Shai Smith than some of the other guys. But, I mean, he hasn't shown us anything to suggest that he's going to be like Shai Smith, step up and be that kind of guy this year. Now, again, crazy, crazy things happen, but we just haven't seen that yet. Now, or Trey Smith, he's another option. Kind of the opposite of Josh Van, a, a bigger guy, 6'4", 225, the receiver position. Had a really nice freshman season a couple years back, almost 400 yards receiving that year, three touchdowns, over 10 yards per catch as a freshman. You really kind of thought he was a guy to watch in the future at South Carolina, but he's kind of fallen off since then. Since that freshman year, he's combined only for 12 catches and 94 yards since that point. Actually opted out last year, did not play last year. He's never been the guy for South Carolina. Now, he's a big physical guy, and you, you look at him out there on the field, and you're like, off the hoof, you're like, man, that guy looks good. But, I mean, he's going into year five, and it's just rare that guys that have been around that long just take this massive leap in year five and become like a star. Now, it, it has happened before, and it could happen again. Certainly, there's a chance, but the chances, I would also say, are not that great. He's just never been that kind of guy. He never has been. But they're going to need more out of him this year. That's that's for darn sure. Um, now, the leading pass catcher on this team actually might not end up being a wide receiver. It might end up being tight end Nick Muse. I mean, if you, it's kind of fun. If you watched uh, South Carolina's media day, if you watched Shane Beamer up there, like one of the comments he made like very pointedly, very clearly was, we're going to throw to the tight end this year. Now, that was, if you guys follow recruiting like, like I do, I know most of you do, that was um, a very unsubtle recruiting pitch to Oscar Delp out of Georgia, who's one of the top tight ends in the country this year that we were recruiting heavily. We're locked in a battle with South Carolina for Oscar Delp. So in my mind, as far as I'm concerned, he was talking directly to Oscar Delp and saying that. But look, they do want to throw their tight ends this year because Nick Muse is a good tight end. He's a guy that I expect them to use a lot, not just because it'll help them on the field this year, but also could potentially help them get some highly rated tight ends like Oscar Delp. Uh, but if you look at Nick Muse, he transferred in from William & Mary back in 2019. He's the fifth-year guy, and he's a good player. He really is. He's a good player. He's, he's got a good physical profile, looks good out there, 6'4", 250, good body type, runs well, good feet, competent blocker, improved there, had 30 catches for 425 yards last year. He is athletic enough to be one of those flex tight ends that can flex out in the slot, potentially even flex him out wide. Um, but he's actually been more effective as an inline receiver. Like when he lines up in line and runs routes from that position, he's been more effective than when they kind of flex him out. He played in line on 54% of their pass plays last year. And from that position had eight receptions of 15 plus yards. So eight, I mean, look, so he had 30 catches. Eight of those were explosive receptions. So this is a guy that can certainly be a threat for them. He has been a threat for them. And I would not be surprised at all to see him end up being like the leading receiver in total 
for this South Carolina offense. But at the end of the day, with a quarterback who needs to make significant strides and an alarming lack of production, returning a wide receiver, it's just tough, man. It's just tough to see this passing game getting off the ground this season. So I think they're going to have to lean on the ground game. I think coming the year, that's what they're going to do, especially early on. And the offensive line should help them in that regard. They, they had some issues in pass protection last year. They were 99th in the country in sack rate. But got to give them credit here. They did pave the way for a 1,000-yard rusher. You know, we, we said earlier that Kevin Harris led the SEC in, in rushing yards per game, and the offensive line's obviously going to play a role in that. But I still don't think they were great in their run game. Like, when you watch them play last year, they did not reset the line of scrimmage enough. They didn't get enough movement, at least not consistently. A lot of that was Kevin Harris just making things happen. He's a good running back. And some of the the advanced numbers kind of bear that out. They were 85th in success rate, 94th in stuff rate, which is percentage of plays are stopped at or behind line of scrimmage. And that good show, they weren't getting much movement. Like when you watch them play, you're like, man, they're just not really getting much movement up front. And then when you're 94th in stuff rate, that kind of lends more credence to what you're seeing there with your eyes. But they do have three stars turning up front, including Dylan Wanham, who's probably, he was probably their best offensive lineman last year. He's coming back, so they'll probably be okay on the offensive line. They'll probably be okay to pretty good. Okay, you know, to mm, solid. We'll, we'll say that. But I don't expect this to be, like, I don't expect them to be like, a disaster on the offensive line, but I don't expect them to be an elite unit either. So offensively, it'll be interesting to see if they try to implement what they want their system to be long-term in year one, kind of just chalk it up as year one being a transition year, kind of like what Kirby did back in 2016, go through those growing pains in the name of establishing your system so you're set up for the future. Is that what they're going to do? Or do you try to fit your offensive scheme around the talent that you have on hand in year one? Try to win early. Try to win as much as you can in year one. Is that what you try to do? That's a tough question. That's a tough question. I don't have to answer that question. That's something they're going to have to discuss amongst themselves in their staff meetings. And I guess we'll find out here in a few short weeks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Now, the other side of the ball, I think, is set up for more success in year one under new defensive coordinator Clayton White. Now, Clayton White is another guy. I don't know all that much about him, guys. I really don't because he's never been a defensive coordinator at this level, at the SEC level, at the Power 5 level. He could be great. He could be open to the possibility, but just like with basically every other guy on their staff, you just don't know because they haven't done it at this level. We're talking about Marcus Satterfield at the offensive coordinator position. We're talking about Shane Beamer himself as the head coach. Whether now you're talking about Clayton White as the defense coordinator. They just never done it. So you just don't know. It's really hard to predict when there's just no evidence to really go off of. But regardless, their defense, as far as I'm concerned, should be ahead of their offense. Uh, for starters, their defense line is loaded with former highly rated prospects. But none of those guys have been consistently good yet. They certainly can be. Those guys are in line potentially make a big jump now going into 2021. But they haven't been consistently great yet. Now, I would say actually their most productive returner is not one of those former five-star players in that defensive line. It's an edge player named Kingsley Inigbare, who was a good recruit in his own right. I think he was a top 300 guy, a four-star prospect. He wasn't one of those five-star, you know, top 15, top 20 kind of guys. But Inigbare has uh, proven to be a very good pass rusher in the SEC. He was actually only behind Aziz in the SEC in uh, pro football focused pass rush grades. He had six sacks in the year. He was first team all SEC as voted on by the league coaches. But as good as he was rushing the passer, man, he was just as bad against the run. He really was. He really was when you watch him play. Great against the pass. Really good pass rusher. Dynamic even as a pass rusher. But he was sixth to last among SEC rush defenders in rush defense grade. His pass rush grade overall was 15th in the country. Rush defense grade, 245. Obviously, big discrepancy there. Uh, and, and some of the issues he had last year, like one of the big issues, I think sometimes he had trouble reading run or pass. 
And in those cases, he kind of just defaults to rushing the passer. So when you do that, he's rushing upfield, gets caught upfield, doesn't close well against the run. But those are things that could be worked on. Like he has the physical skill set to be able to improve quite a bit against the run. He just needs to work on that. And that's something that you do with time and with growth. Obviously, and I think not having a spring last year certainly hurt him in that regard. But he's a really talented player and a guy to certainly watch out for, have to game plan for when you're playing the South Carolina defense. And then on the interior, you got former five-star Zach Pickens, big-time recruit. You got Rick Sandage, who, wasn't, who was a five-star, I think at one point ended up a, a high four-star uh, but highly rated guy coming out of high school as well. We were after uh, both those guys, especially Sanders. Though we might get Sanders there at the end, but he ended up in South Carolina. Uh, but neither one of those guys have lived up to their lofty rankings quite yet, but they've shown flashes. They've been good in flashes, and they can really turn it on this year. It's possible. We don't know, but it's possible. Uh, Jordan Birch is uh, another edge player for them, kind of like Inigbare, who was a former top 10 overall recruit. We were heavily involved in his recruitment. Ultimately, he decided to stay home in Columbia. This guy's actually from Columbia, stayed home, and he's uh, playing for the Gamecocks. Good player, former five-star. Uh, hasn't been that, wasn't that guy last year, but coming into this year with a full offseason under his belt, he could be lying for a big jump as well. Aaron Sterling is another guy to know that's been that has been good for South Carolina in years past. He actually missed most of last year with an injury, but he was a very consistent run defender prior to that. One of the better edge run defenders in the league actually prior to the injury last year. So it'd be interesting to see like if he returns to form, like what kind of player is he going to be coming off the injury? We don't know. Is he back to 100%? Same guy? We'll see. Um, now another name, put this one in your back pocket. Another name to watch out for along their defensive front is a guy named Jordan Strachan. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. And he is a transfer from Georgia State who uh, he had a massive 2020 uh, playing in the Sun Belt. I mean, he just had a, an explosive year in the Sun Belt. Now, I know it's Sun Belt competition. We'll see how that translates to the SEC. But regardless, the guy did everything he could last year to make a name for himself to the point where he got recruited to come to an SEC program. He had a 90.2 overall pass rush grade according to Pro Football Focus last year at Georgia State. So you got to imagine he's going to be a guy that's going to be featured heavily on that defensive line as well. So I told you guys, man, Will Muschamp loaded up that defensive line with talented players. And they are just loaded every which way with like former five-star, high four-star ranked guys. They just, they just have to develop those guys. Guys just have to make jumps. But I think that this South Carolina defensive front pretty clearly should be the strength of their defense. Now, behind them at inside linebacker, they're just okay, I guess is what I would say. They're okay, not bad, okay. They're probably going to start two fifth-year guys. Uh, obviously, that's good from an experience standpoint. You want to have experience. That's great. Two fifth-year guys play a lot of football for you. That, that's a good starting point. But at the same time, both those guys are, I guess what I would call marginally talented. Like They're not complete scrubs, but they're not... I don't want to say they're not SEC caliber linebackers, but they're not elite SEC caliber linebackers. Let's just say that. Sherrod Green's been around for a while, solid, not dynamic, but a good solid player. He's just not fast enough to play against modern spread teams. I think you basically say the same thing about Damani Staley, maybe even more so about him, but they're they're very similar in, in what they can do and what they bring to the table. And there's, I haven't seen much behind them at this point. We'll see what they've got right now, but those would be the two guys inside linebacker, and they're 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 fine. They're solid. They're okay. Now, in the secondary, it's almost a complete rebuild. Really, it is. J.C. Horn, Israel McQuamu, who, I mean, think back to 2019, guys. Like, I don't, I don't want to think about that. I hate to even bring that up. But remember that game where we just got embarrassed by South Carolina? That game that we lost that cost us a spot in the cultural playoff? Yeah, that game at home? Yeah, that one? Well, if you remember that game, we couldn't throw the ball to save our lives. Now, Cage goes out with an injury early in the game. That hurts, right? But the big reason why we couldn't throw the football is J.C. Horn, Israel Mokwamu were just basically playing man free out there. They were playing one one single high safe in the middle of the field and they were manning up on our receivers out wide and they just dominated us. They dominated our receivers flat out. J.C. Horn, Mokwamu, they won that game for South Carolina. That's why we lost. That is 100% why we lost. Nobody can get open. Just could not get open. But those guys are gone. They're both gone. The Jamie Robinson's other guy, you might remember his name from recruiting. He's transferred to Florida State. R.J. Roderick, He's a guy who is back at safety, and he does bring some much-needed experience, but dude, Roderick is a massive liability in coverage, like massive liability in coverage. It's hard to even put the guy on the field because he just can't cover a soul. He's slow. He's got terrible hips. Now, he's pretty good in run support. He's a physical guy. I guess that's why he's on the field, but man, if you can scheme it up to match him up with one of your top receivers, 
game over, man. I mean, you can just pick on him all, all day long. And he got picked on all year in coverage. That's what teams did to them. It's, and he's just, I, I can't tell you how many times when we're going back and watching the tape where he's just like chasing a guy down the field because he just got burned in coverage over and over and over and over again. But they'll throw him out there again because they don't have really many other options. And he's got some veteran experience. So I guess I'll give him that. Uh, Cam Smith, if I'm projecting, will probably be their top cornerback. He filled in once Horn McQuamu opted out last year. Uh, but very difficult to imagine that he's going to be close to as good as either one of those guys. I mean, J.C. Horn's a first-round pick. I mean, McQuamu got drafted later. McQuamu was a good player in college. He really was. Uh, Smith had three starts last year. He's a little undersized, but he moves well. He's got solid ball skills. He'll probably be their top cornerback this year if I had to project right now. But ultimately... This is a defense that is going to lean very heavily on their defensive line because that's where all the talent is. And if you have a good offensive line that can protect your quarterback offensively, there's a lot of success to be had against the rest of this South Carolina defense. All right, to sum this all up, South Carolina, well, they are embarking on the great Shane Beamer experiment this year. They are going all in on a coach that absolutely no one else in America was pursuing or ever has pursued to be their head coach. Could it be a genius move where they are just one step ahead of everyone else in America? Sure, yeah, I mean, I guess anything's possible. But the far more likely reality here is that they reached on a young coach with a family pedigree who made some good friends, made a good impression during his short assistant coach in Columbia. It's a guy who won't ruffle any feathers, who will win the fan base over early on with his passion and his youthful energy. He'll probably win the fan base over and he'll probably uh, get his team to, you know, eight, nine win here and there. But I don't know if this is the guy that's going to lead them to consistent high level elite success. That's gonna change the face of this program. It's gonna transform them to something greater than what they have historically been. And this is a guy who, He's bringing an offensive coordinator to install a more modern spread offense, but they don't really have the pieces to do that in year one offensively. There's got to be some concerns there, obviously. Then on defense, they've got some highly talented pieces up front on that defensive line. They got a couple of veteran but marginally talented inside linebackers, and then they've got some major question marks in the secondary. All of that, to me, adds up to a tough year one for Beamer Ball version 2.0 in Columbia, South Carolina. And he just better hope that the Gamecock faithful have truly finally accepted their station in life and don't get too impatient with him. They don't burn him at the stake in year one if things don't go as well as they want them to go. But all right, guys, that does it for us here today on the Glory UJ podcast. I really appreciate you guys again for supporting our show, for helping us out, following us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook giving us those five-star ratings and reviews. You guys have been incredible, and uh, we just are so grateful for all your continued support. Remember what I said at the outset of the show. If we get to 300 five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and 500 followers on Instagram before the start of the season, we will do an Instagram live session. We're going to interact directly with you guys. I don't know how to do that yet, but hey, I can figure it out, right? Figure out how to do a podcast with fun time. I can figure out how to do that. And to wrap up this week, we actually have one more episode for you guys this week. I have an interview with Brett Siancha, who's the guy who does Pick 6 Previews, which for my money is the best preview magazine. It's not really a magazine, it's a digital booklet, I guess, but it's the best college ball preview out there in the market, and it's really just not even close. Had him on last, you're going to have him on again. We don't do a ton of interviews, because honestly, I don't really love interviews all that much, but I'm listening to podcasts and radio stations. I just don't think you get that much out of them. I know a lot of people out there do like them, but we're going to bring him on because I do think this is a guest that can give you guys a lot of information, a lot of insight. So we're going to have him on and uh, that should be a lot of fun. So we look forward to that later on this week, but thank you guys. Always appreciate it. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.